For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the legislature has approved a state budget. Christopher Conover will discuss the details. Meet a doctor from Pakistan who's making a difference in Marana. Explore the University of Arizona's important role in planetary exploration. And visit a pie party that celebrates the sweet side of Tucson. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last week at this same time, we were still waiting on state lawmakers to pass a budget. Joining me now to talk about what has transpired is Christopher Conover. Hi, Mark. Tell me, Christopher, what kind of role did Kids Care play in um, these legislators making a final agreement? Kids Care played a very interesting role. The House passed a Kids Care re-enrollment bill earlier this year. It stalled in the Senate. The Senate president doesn't like it. There was a move in the House by the Republican who sponsored the original Kids Care Bill to amend that into the budget. And at the last minute, she pulled that amendment off the table, didn't even offer it because it wasn't part of the budget deal that had been worked out between the leaders in the House, the leaders in the Senate, and the governor. Democrats, though, picked that exact amendment up, basically crossed off her name after she threw it away put in the name of a Democratic lawmaker and tried to get kids' care reopened. The Republicans in the House, a number of them did speak in favor of it, but said they couldn't vote for it because it wasn't part of the budget deal and they didn't, in their own words, want to blow up the budget. So it failed. A couple days later, a Republican in the House tried to amend another bill Uh, once again to bring kids' care back, and and that too became a a big point of contention. What it comes down to is this. Kids' care is an insurance program for children and families who make too much money to be on access, but not enough money to get subsidies to get into the Affordable Care Act. So it's kind of a gap program. The state stopped funding kids' care during the recession as a cost-saving measure. The federal government has come along and said, we will cover all the costs if you reopen kids' care. And the Republicans who oppose it say the problem is there's no guarantee that the federal government will stick to their word. And all of a sudden, Arizona could be, as they say, stuck with the bill for these 30,000 kids who could get in and get health insurance. The amendments that have not gone anywhere did say that if the federal government pulled the money back, then Arizona had the option to get out again. Right now, Arizona is the only state in the nation that does not have some form of children's health insurance. On the education front, did the three state universities get the kind of increase that they were looking for? The three state universities got an increase. I don't know if it was exactly what they were looking for, looking at the cuts that the universities have taken in recent years, but they did get an increase. The big increase was $19 million uh, for the three state universities, and that was to make up for some of the cuts that the universities have taken in recent years. Democrats during the budget debate tried to add in $81 million to the budget in order to make 
the cuts uh, whole, if you will. So it would have been a total of $100 million new dollars that the university uh, are getting. That failed. Again, it wasn't part of the negotiated budget deal. Uh, basically anything that the Democrats tried to put in didn't get put into the budget because it wasn't part of the deal. What should be clear, though, is this $19 million is what they call one-time money. The legislature is essentially writing a check to the three universities. Here you go. Here's $19 million to try and make up for some of those cuts. But this isn't a payment that will come every year. It's not a recurring bill. It is a one-time check they're writing. With this uh, desire to continue to color within the, the preset lines of the budget uh, this year, would you say that Governor Ducey still saw his wish list get fulfilled? The governor saw a lot of his wishes get fulfilled. He ran on the campaign uh, on the idea that he was going to cut taxes every year. There's a big tax cut package in there. Most of it is aimed at business, but there is a big tax cut package in there. He wanted this border strike force that he stood up kind of in September out of the Department of Public Safety. Uh, he got funding for that. That's pretty controversial. A lot of the border sheriffs don't like the strike force. They say, give us the money. We know the border because those are our communities. We can do better than some new force. Uh, put more DPS troopers out on the road. There are areas... Uh, uh, not far from the border that have no DPS coverage overnight just simply because there aren't enough troopers. The Cochise County Sheriff, who is an ally of the governor's, uh, is one of the few sheriffs who came out in favor of it, but the legislature did pass it. Well, Christopher, I'm glad you're here to get your hands dirty with these numbers and and this fact-checking so some of the rest of us don't have to. (laughs) Thanks. Regulations concerning travel visas can be bureaucratic and confusing. But one requirement asked of foreign students earning their medical degrees in the U.S. is creating some positive opportunities. Next, Julianne Stanford introduces us to Hassan Abdullah and explores how a doctor from Pakistan is making a difference in a medically underserved community in Arizona. Hi, well, welcome to MHC Healthcare. Um, Internal medicine is going to be on our second floor. It's a busy morning at the Marana Main Clinic of MHC Healthcare in Marana, Arizona. Marana is a small town with a population of less than 40,000 people. Okay, so we're going to come right over here. I'll have you take off your shoes. The clinic is located a few turns off of I-10 exit 236, past a McDonald's and some gas stations, tucked away in a neighborhood. There isn't much around it other than a parking structure and a fire station surrounded by empty dirt lots. Your blood pressure is looking good. That's Hassan Abdullah. He's the only pediatrician at this clinic. Like many other small towns and rural communities in America, medical care and quality physicians can be hard to come by. Miley Clark is the public relations director for MHC Healthcare. She says this is a nationwide problem. So a medically underserved community or area, they call it MUA, the acronym for it, is um, it's, a, a, it's where care is scarce, but it's really needed. I would need to share a statistic with you that is a national statistic from 2013. And uh, it says here that nationally 62 million people 
which is 20% of the U.S. population experience inadequate or no access to primary care because of shortages of physicians in their community. Abdullah is part of the government's effort to alleviate those doctor shortages. He originally came to the United States through a State Department exchange program for foreign medical students to pursue graduate-level education or participate in a residency program. So I am from uh, Karachi, which is, uh, which is a southern coastal city, um, the biggest city in Pakistan. What got me into medicine, frankly speaking, was uh, my mother. My mother pushed me into medicine, and she um, denies that now, but... She was the one who, who thought that I would, be, I, I would fit well in medicine. I think my mom was just, was just trying to sway me away from uh, trying to become a car racer because that was my, my goal at the time. And she, she, for some reason, thought that medicine would be a better profession. So my decision to become a pediatrician was uh, mainly because of a personal experience. My older brother was diagnosed with a type of a muscle cancer called uh, rhabdomyosarcoma, and um, he, he fought for two years, and uh, he passed away in 1999. That got me interested in pediatric cancer medicine, and that's what I decided I uh, wanted to do. When I, after my training in general pediatrics, I started liking it, so I became a general pediatrician. To enter the United States, foreign medical students need what's called a J-1 visa. It's a non-immigrant, short-term visa that allows students to stay in the U.S. for the duration of their studies. It then requires them to return back to their country of origin for a minimum of two years. However, after recognizing the need for doctors in rural communities, the government decided to create a program that would allow the foreign medical students to waive that requirement. They can do so by working at a clinic in an underserved area for three years. That's how Abdullah wound up at the Marana Main Clinic. I applied to a lot of places uh, that offered uh, J-1 waiver positions, and these are usually rural communities, so places I had never heard of, and uh, often people have not heard of, like Duncan, Oklahoma, or uh, Kokomo in Indiana, uh, in Marana, Arizona, I had not heard of it. But I, I interviewed, and I, I really liked the type of the history of MHC healthcare and also the surroundings. I fell in love with it the first time I came here. Uh, and the fact that I was being given the opportunity to be the only pediatrician in a pretty large area. And that's what primary care is all about. I wanted to be at the forefront of uh, delivering the care. On an average day, Abdullah sees about 20 patients. On a busy day, he can see up to 30. Each year, he estimates he provides care to more than 5,000 children. He says the trust parents place in him to help their child is the most rewarding feeling. And when, uh, when they call us and say that they do not want to go to, to the emergency room, they, they do not want to go to um, an urgent care that they're not familiar with, but they would prefer if we squeeze them in our schedule on the day. Um, that, that, that really means a lot to me because it tells me that uh, the amount of confidence that the parents have. Clark estimates MHC currently has five or six J-1 waiver physicians employed across the 15 MHC clinics. She says the care they provide is the same as any other doctor in their network. A J-1 waiver doctor has the same um, certifications that a U.S. provider would get. So you're still going to get the same type of board certifications you would if they were a regular U.S. provider and had all of their schooling here in the United States. Clark says the program benefits the community beyond health care. 
Well, you know, I think it's I think it's very beneficial because not everybody in America is American. So a lot of times, you know, part of that medically underserved population that we're also serving, um, they have cultural differences. They have um, also the linguistic differences. And so by having um, doctors that are not American, they can identify with some of those things that maybe nobody else could identify or even understand. Pediatrician Abdullah says the waiver program is mutually beneficial for physicians and the community in need. So the J-1 waiver program appears like a win-win situation to me because on one hand, uh, the physicians are able to complete their three-year service in an underserved area. And on the other hand, the community benefits as well by getting access to improved primary care right at their doorstep. There's also reduced healthcare costs overall because uh, reduced hospital admissions, reduced ICU care, and we're able to uh, prevent the problems from snowballing into something bigger. The term of Abdullah's waiver service requirement was up about a year and a half ago, but he decided to stay in Marana because of how much he loved the community and providing care for its children. Serving the community in Marana has been a beautiful experience. I've been here for about four and a half years now, and I have built relationships with the community. They have been very nice to me. The families that I work with, I've gotten so close to them that uh, the newborns that I started take care, taking care of uh, four years ago, now they give me high fives on their way out. Um, the teenagers that I was taking care of four years ago, they completed high schools, are going into college, and when they say they, uh, they were inspired by me, that, that means the world to me. From Marana, Arizona, I'm Julianne Stanford for Arizona Spotlight. The University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Laboratory has played a part in each of NASA's planetary exploration missions. A new book called Under Desert Skies chronicles that history and the scientists who made it possible. Next, Sarah Hammond interviews author and researcher Melissa Sivany. How did you come to write this book? And what was Michael Drake looking for when he asked you to, to take on this project? Well, um, it started about 10 years ago now, and um, neither Mike or I knew that it was going to be a book, um, actually. Uh, it started as a, an undergraduate project at the University of Arizona, and he hired me, I think his words were something like, um, to capture the memories of the old timers while we still had them around, um, and, and turn that into some kind of narrative. So the idea was to... Um, capture these stories about the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, which was founded in 1960 by Gerard Kuiper and has been involved in planetary science ever since. Um, so, so that was how I, I got into it. And, you know, at the end of that first year, I had, you know, a dozen um, interviews or so. And I had so much fun on the project that I went to Mike and I said, I don't think I'm done yet. Why don't you keep me on for another year? And he did. Um, and four years later, I had between 50 and 60 interviews with planetary scientists um, and a first draft of what eventually became this book, Under Desert Skies. Who are some of the planetary science luminaries to come through the Lunar and Planetary Lab? 
Gosh, it's a hard question to answer because um, so many people have come through the lab since it was founded in 1960. Um, and, you know, these days, if you if you find a paper written about planetary science and you look at the list of co-authors, it's a pretty safe bet that somebody who's in Tucson or who passed through Tucson is, is on that list of co-authors. One of the things that Kuiper did in the early 70s was he uh, founded the Department of Planetary Sciences in association with the Lunar and Planetary Lab. And I think it's important to note that at the time, he wasn't really all that interested in teaching. What he was interested in was um, keeping his research project going. And to do that, he needed the funding that teaching would bring in. But nevertheless, the result was that Tucson became this kind of uh, powerhouse for churning out good planetary scientists. Maybe one example of that would be um, Dante Loretta, who got started at the Lunar Lab the same way I did as a space grant intern as an undergraduate. And of course, now he's the head of the OSIRIS-REx mission, um, which is a very ambitious project to go to an asteroid and bring back a sample return. From your research and the folks you talked with, who would you say is the most underappreciated character associated with the Lunar and Planetary Lab? One of my favorite characters was Ewan Whitaker, who came over from, from England, invited by Jared Kuiper to join the Lunar Mapping Project. He was an amateur astronomer. It was his, always his dream to study space, but he didn't really have the opportunities to pursue that um, as, a, as a child and a young man. Um, and so he, he came over to join the Lunar Mapping Project really as a temporary job. He was just going to come over for a month, make some lunar maps, and then go back to England. Um, but then right around that time is when President Kennedy made his announcement that we were going to the moon. And suddenly our nation really needed people like you and Whitaker, and there weren't very many of them out there. And again, I think it's incredible that um, so many important discoveries were made by people who were amateurs, right? And, you know, the root of that word is people who simply love something, who are passionate about something. Maybe they didn't have a formal degree. Um, of course, at the time, there were no formal degrees in planetary science. Um, but these people who had keen eyes and, and just a deep love for, um, for planetary science were able to make these really profound discoveries. What are some of the major discoveries to have come out of the Lunar and Planetary Lab? That's a great question, and it's hard to answer. Um, <laughs> over the last half a century or so, um, Tucson and the Lunar and Planetary Lab has been involved with, I would say, every you know space mission that has gone out into the solar system. Um, you know, everything from those early missions to reach the moon to the most recent um, mission, New Horizons, to Pluto, um, and of course the Phoenix mission to Mars. Um, so, you know, what we know about the solar system in a large part. Um, arose out of Tucson and the scientists in Tucson. Do you think that the U of A is the birthplace of the discipline of planetary science? Or to say it another way, did the planets align in Tucson? Yes, I do. And that's a that's a bold statement to make. I'm sure others would disagree with me. But I'll tell you why I think that. Um, you know, when President Kennedy made his announcement that we were going to the moon, everybody was sort of in shock because at the time, nobody was interested in studying the moon or the planets. They had become a very boring topic, right? Um, and astronomers weren't, weren't particularly interested in them. And so, you know, the engineers at, at NASA and at JPL kind of looked around the country, and there was no one who could even answer the question, what is the moon made out of? You know, we needed to know that if we were going to land an astronaut on the moon. But really the only one in the country who was doing anything with the moon was Gerard Kuiper here in Tucson. And he had founded this incredible 
lunar mapping project um, that a lot of other scientists at the time thought was crazy. Um, and so if you were to try to, to pin down the moment when this new field was born, the field of planetary science, which is a completely different field than astronomy, by the way, um, that would be the moment I would pick uh, when Gerard Kuiper sort of stepped up to the plate um, in order to answer that question, what is the moon made of? Can we really land astronauts there? Melissa Sivany is the science producer at KNAU Public Radio and Flagstaff. Sarah Hammond talked with her about her book, Under Desert Skies, published earlier this year by the University of Arizona Press. From classics to brand new, never-before-tasted combinations, more than 150 kinds of pie took center stage at the annual nonprofit Tucson Pie Party, presented by the Food Conspiracy Co-op on 4th Avenue. Producer Sofia Paliza Carr was in attendance to bring Dimelo a forkful of sweetness and an earful of stories about food and community. So right now uh, we're at the, the farmer's market and I'm looking for Inspiration for a local pie, um, homegrown, is the is it home slice or home? Home slice is so cute. It should be home slice. Georgia Taylor is a children's librarian by day, the VP of Tucson Roller Derby by nights and weekends, and an ambitious pie maker in whatever time is left over. I printed out a long list of good like food combinations because <laughs> I'm usually just a person that follows recipes. So this is going to be the first time I'm putting together my own pie. At this year's pie party, she's gunning for an award in the home slice category, a new one this year for pies that feel and taste close to home. While Tucson is home to the Pie Allen neighborhood, named after failed prospector John Brackett Pie Allen, who among other things made dried apple pies for soldiers in the 1800s, it's not the home to fruits and traditional pie fillings, peaches, apples, etc. So if you want your Tucson pie to be hyper-local, first you have to shop creatively. And then you bake. Georgia ended up making a roasted green apple chili pie and a grapefruit prickly pear mint pie. Can you grab those? Yeah. And on the day of the event, you leave your roller derby practice early that morning, and hopefully your pies have cooled by the time you get to the registration table and haven't been squashed in your suburban on the way over. Someone was like veering into me. I was like, this is not the day to veer into me. During the party, the atmosphere was, well, festive. Even if it is a competition, when you're full of pie, you get a peaceful, easy feeling. I pulled aside some other bakers to ask them, what else is pie good for, besides eating? They shared some memories of pie, food, and life with me. Um, today, I brought a uh, apricot mulberry pie. I got the apricots from Sleeping Frog Farm from the Tucson CSA share. And a couple weeks ago, I went to my mom's house in Phoenix and harvested mulberries. For Amy Valdez Schwem, cooking is all about family. So I think one thing I really learned from my grandmother was making um, large quantities of food to feed a lot of people. She would organize the crew to make, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of tamales for her church. So um, I think that's... That's a you know fun community thing that I've that I've carried on. We like to make every 
single thing that we can find a recipe for. I mean, of course, we grew up making Mexican food and um, um, tamales and enchiladas and mole and things like that. And then that eventually went on to become um, my business. So I, I make mole as a business. Hi, I'm Emily Rocky. Uh, and I'm Christopher Byrne. Emily and Chris are scary good at walking me through how their pie tastes. It tastes very fresh. Um, and then the spices, the ginger is, um, is the prominent spice that you taste initially. And then right after that you get the other spices, the clove, a little bit of cinnamon. Um, I think it tastes spring-like, which is why we called it this caramelized carrot ginger springtime pie. It's perfect. That's a perfect description. We think there's no more beautiful place in the world than the Sonoran Desert in Tucson and the community that we're a part of here. So uh, we like to celebrate it and, uh, and we like to uh, be able to go out to where we are and, and, and enjoy the things that you only find here. Sora fruit and mesquite. Uh, it's something you don't see anywhere else in the world and we like to celebrate that. Nobody likes to eat turnips, or they don't know that they, that they like them because they refuse to try them, because they're an odd root vegetable. Shannon Scott is trying to get people to eat their veggies with her Rattlebox Greens and Campazola cheese pie. She also helped out as a judge. It was very challenging. I think I, because I brought some of my own self into the judging, knowing because I'm a pie maker myself, and so thinking that somebody's making this and it's their favorite pie. So it's trying to go into the judging with that in mind, that this, somebody had made this from their heart or from some history of their family. And so I was tasting it with that in mind. I'm Emma Stalwart. It's an apricot frangipane. It's French, so I don't actually know if that's how you say that. Frangipane, maybe? Emma grew up Mennonite and making shoe fly pie, donuts, and pancakes. Remember the home slice category Georgia was gunning for? Emma ended up winning it this year. But in the past, it hasn't always been smooth sailing. Saturday morning pancakes was a staple, and at some point they became my pancakes I was the pancake maker and flipper and that felt really special and there was one morning I remember where I was stirring up the dry ingredients and somehow something slipped and we dumped the flour and everything all over the floor and had to start over. Um, the pie party was one of the first big community events I went to when I moved to Tucson so to me it feels like a Tucson staple that there is this amazing community of people in Tucson that loves to bake and eat pies. I caught back up with Georgia towards the end of the party. She spent most of the time helping to serve slices, and yet she's still smiling. I sadly did not win. Yeah, it happens. It's all good. As long as my pie plates are cleared by the end of the party, it makes me feel really good. <laughs> and as a plus, her roller derby group ended up winning part of the money fundraise that day for Tucson nonprofits. But still, when her mom asked if she could make a prickly pear pie for her next week when she's in town, Georgia said okay, but only a small one. For Dime Los Stories, I'm Sofia Palisakar. Dime Lo is a community-driven storytelling project. You can contribute online at dimelostories.org. Dime Lo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in combination with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio,
supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Music in the story was by Siksa. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.